Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. And welcome back. Episode 27 of the Black Psychologist Podcast. I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for all your listening and viewing pleasures, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I and I am him. And you guys know by now that I'm never, ever here by myself. This guy, let me tell you about this guy. He's not cocky. He's confident. So when you say he's the best, it's a compliment. Dr. Jason Coleman, how are you? Good, sir. I'm good, bro. What's going on, man? None, man. You know, here we are at the top of a week, you know, just made it through. You know, we're getting through it. We halfway through this uh, this September month. Uh, it's moving fast, man. But, you know, here we are. Yeah, listen, man, feeling good today. You know, it was a busy week, but a good one. Um, you know, I can only see the top of your shirt, but I, I, I see you got on one of my oh, favorite, le- most you know legendary groups. Hold on, hold on a second. You know, you know what that is. I'm just there. You go. Yeah. You know, no. one of the most legendary music groups. All day. Um, that's right. But yeah, man, um, it was a good week. You know, just a busy day, but of course, you know, we just want to thank everybody for watching, taking the time um, to listen or watch. Um, we appreciate it. So definitely, you know, continue. We're gonna try to keep putting the content out, um, but definitely humbled and thankful for people that listen. Absolutely. Episode 27, we wouldn't be here without you guys being able to tune in without y'all watching and, and subscribing. So just as you said, Jay, continue to watch, comment, subscribe, any questions, comments, or statements, um, feedback you want from us about anything, please hit us up at uh, the Black Psychologist Podcast at gmail.com. We love to hear back from you guys. We love to answer questions. So uh, do that. And uh, before we get started, um, also wanted to point out, I wanted to do this and, and slipped my mind during our last episode, but um, we lost somebody earlier this month. Um, great, great talent, um, you know, actor, dancer, choreographer, um, Michael K. Williams. A lot of people know him from The Wire, um, from his amazing character, Omar. Uh, but I definitely wanted to, you know, keep his family and his thoughts and prayers. You know, we lost him earlier in the month. Um, and I know that, uh, Jay, we've talked about this, you know, um, you know, off camera and such, just about, you know, when that happened, how we talked about it. And uh, so definitely thoughts and prayers to, to Omar, um, the greatest character in television history, one of the top ones. Um, it was really cool that I think yesterday, last night at the, uh, the Ravens, uh, Kansas city game, they actually did, uh, the Ravens, it was their home game. So they actually played the, uh, the whistle, you know, how, you know, in the, in the, on the show before he would get ready to do his thing, he would, he would play the whistle. So they did that before the Ravens came out um, as a salute to him and to honor him. So um, so that was pretty dope. So uh, so absolutely, you know, great actor going way too soon. Great talent. So I wanted to make sure uh, we got that out. Yeah. So one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest shows, man. (laughs) Listen, I'm 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 smiling because in my mind, 
I'm thinking about when he was standing outside of the building. He was like, "You better throw that bag over the over the over the wall for I huff and I puff." Listen, crazy series, man. Like, listen, The Wire is one of those, like The Sopranos. You know what I mean? Um, just legendary. This, you know, kiss can't be replaced. You know, um, and even outside of that role, there was a lot of things you know people don't hear about that he was trying to do mm-hmm. to kind of help the culture and the community. Um, so. You know, obviously, 40-something years old, uh, gone too soon. So, you know, definitely definitely a good thing. You shouted that out. Absolutely. All right. So let's go on and get into it. So, Jay, let me ask you a question. When you received your first dose of the COVID vaccine, did you feel any sense of relief? Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, you wouldn't be alone in that. All right. So an article that recently came across the desk actually showed that suggests that there's a common feeling of that relief uh, for many people after they received the first dose of the COVID, um, COVID-19 vaccine. So there was a study that was recently done uh, consisting of 8,003 adults. Um, these participants were surveyed at a regular intervals between March 10th of last year and March 31st of 2021 of this year. And they were required to answer questions about the vaccine status, about their, you know, whether they were vaccinated or not, um, what their levels of depression, anxiety were done. And that, this was done using a, um, a four item patient health questionnaire. Uh, so what researchers found through the study was that after they received uh, those that received the first dose of the vaccine between December of last year and March of this year experienced a 4% reduction in their risk of being mildly depressed. They also found that they had there was a 15% reduction in the risk of them being severely depressed. Now, on the other hand, those that had not received the vaccine began to feel even more anxious and depressed. So based off these findings and results and what you read in the article, uh, what would you take away from this, Jeff? I mean, listen, I, I understand the findings that they confirmed, you know, um, I, this is what I would, what I would have hypothesized would have happened from the beginning. Right. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, we have something that's a tragedy, um, you know, that's a tragic event. Um, it's affecting hundreds of thousands of people. So even more than that, when we talk about like families, people feel like it's out of their control, they're experiencing anxiety, right? And what what does the sh- taking a vaccine do, right? Um, you're doing something about it. So it's going to give you a feeling of empowerment, right? Now, <clears throat> when I mean taking the vaccine, now let's let's be honest. Let, let's be before I even uh, ex- uh, before I even expand on my point. I do believe. That, you know, the vaccine, you know, works and all that, but I'm just talking about the theory behind taking, right? They're do, you're doing something about a situation that's out of your control, right? So even if those people were taking a place, uh, uh, you, you, know, you know what I mean, like a sugar pill or something that didn't work, it was still, I think, my belief that they would still get that feeling, right? Because you're doing something about that something that's out of your control. Um, so like me personally, when I, when, when I got the vaccine, like I felt like, I was Iron Man or something like Robert Downey putting on the suit, man, you know? Um, but that's what I mean. Like in terms of that feeling of empowerment, like in addition to all the other things we're doing, right? Like hand washing, masking, all of those things, it kind of, to me, it kind of like adds to that feeling. So long story short, I wasn't surprised. Um, 
I wasn't surprised with the you know results. Mm-hmm. How'd you feel about it? Um, I mean, me personally, when I received the um, you know, the first dose of the vaccine, it was more the hope definitely with I'm taking some more of that control because I feel like for the the longest throughout this whole past year, it's been a lack of control. Right. Like a lot of decisions and things have been done. There's been a lot of uncertainty. It's it's almost been like for the majority of all last year and then even now we're like going along, we're reacting, right? We're reacting right. to whatever these protocols that are being passed down, any new information. And so, you know, it was like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to, you know, one, I can make the decision whether I'm going to get the vaccine or not. Two, it's like, okay, this with hopes of this, it's like, okay, I can do something to protect myself, right? Reduce the risk of being infected or, or if you are infected, you know, lowering that, you know, the severity of, you know, your symptoms, if, if you are infected with disease. So it was more just kind of gaining that control and then hoping that, you know, there will be some sense of normalcy going forward. All right. Hopefully this is some of the steps now, you know, I'll be at baby steps, but I, you know, I was hoping that this would be steps for us getting back towards some sense of normalcy. Like I've accepted the the fact or terms that I don't think we're ever going to get back to what it was pre COVID. I feel like this is always going to be, you know, present to some extent. And I feel like, you know, all the changes and adjustments and things that, you know, we as just as a society have had to make, I don't think we're ever going to get back to what it used to be. However, regaining and hopefully being able to obtain some sense of normalcy, I felt like the vaccine was going to be like this was you know, some of that, you know, that trajectory going towards that. So um, that was what I thought. But, yeah, I wasn't surprised about the, um, you know, the results, because, you know, even though the numbers are like, you know, 4 percent, 15 percent, you know, that's still a decent amount, even with just 8000 people that were utilized in the study. So, right. you know, it's like, and that's surprised. It's like, okay, people, I think a lot of folks were also in hope that, hey, this is the back for us getting back on track and hopefully beating this thing. Right, right. Um, you know, and listen, like, I didn't really think about that part, but I agree with you totally in terms of the vaccine and it just it getting approved, you know, gave us hope for in terms of moving back towards normalcy. However, we can kind of say that's going to look like. Um, I personally think we're going to be seeing people wearing masks and, you know, in public and probably like people who are working in businesses like that. Like when we look like look at servers and people like that, Mm -hmm. I think some industries may never go back to not wearing masks again. Right. Um, And certain things we just may not see again. Like, I, you know, I wonder I, I have no knowledge of this, but I wonder how Las Vegas looks in terms of like buffets and all of these things like. in terms of pre-pandemic, how they look now, right? Because what I'm semi, what I what I'm sure about is that people probably don't have the same level of comfort as with somebody else reaching over their mashed potatoes. You know what I mean? Right. So a little bit, it's, things have changed. Like you know what I'm saying? Um, so, I, but you know what was 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 interesting, and I wanted to kind of ask you about was the other side of it, right? They were talking about the people who didn't take the vaccine, they felt increased anxiety, right? Um, so I was just wondering what, like, what did you think about it? Because I was thinking about, okay, so you got people that take the vaccine, you know, um, me included, 
you know, you feel a sense of hope, you feel a little bit more in control. Then you have other people that don't take it for whatever reason, right? Um, so it's fair to assume without taking into account the reason they didn't take it that at the very least they feel the same amount of anxiety that they felt before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, now the, the, the research is saying that after not taking it, they started feeling worse. So my question to you is why, right? And what I was thinking about is I'm like, well, if you feel out of control, right, then things continue to get worse around you, right? The numbers inevitably keep going up, right? Um, jobs are drying up, all of these things. Um, as human beings, not saying that we need every answer question, every question answered, right? But what else is out there, right? Because a lot of these people, and now I'm just speculating, a lot of these people have rejected the experts, right? So what does that leave you? Because usually these are the people that, that bring us that comfort with the numbers, right? With the, the safety behaviors. So if you've rejected the experts, you've rejected the, the vaccine, then the only thing that's really left out there is your, your own expertise, which is probably not there, and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really, you know, and conspiracy theories are not there to provide us with answers, you know? So um, in that, I can understand why anxiety would increase for some of those people, you know what I mean? So I was thinking... Um kind of along those lines, but then the other side, the opposite end of the spectrum and hoping or having hope for those that were unvaccinated, that this would elicit or prompt some hope in them. Cause like you said, there's so much misinformation out there, right? They're rejecting right. the experts and, you know, it's a lot of confirmation bias when they see, you know, things on social media and they're like, Oh, you, you see this guy, he, oh, the dude fell out after he got the first vaccination, or he got the first vaccine and this guy, and, sure. you know, and you're, you're, you know, you're still hearing like all these other different outlandish stories of these side effects and things of that nature. And so what I was hoping, because a lot of these tend to be like really extreme or they're like anecdotal, right? It's like, Oh, I knew somebody that got it and you know, his leg fell off. Right. It's like really outlandish, just extreme. So I was hoping that when, as people saw others like in their neighborhood or people that they knew getting vaccinated and then you would see them. Okay. Right. Like I see, Mm -hmm. I see Anthony getting vaccinated who I see at the barbershop every weekend. And then I see him, he got vaccinated. I see him the following weekend. He's fine. Right. He's okay. Uh, okay. He's still alive. Right. No missing limbs. No, no, you know, none of that stuff. And so I was hoping that when people would see that, it would be like, oh, well, you know what? It's maybe it's not like all these other different rumors, all these wild side effects that people said that they, they they hear of and all the conspiracy theories. And I was hoping that when you see other folks get vaccinated and they actually turned out to be okay and healthy, that this would maybe prompt them to be more, at least be more open to it. Right. Because like you said, if they're not going to go based off of science, they're not going to go based off the experts. All right. Well, your own expertise is you got your own eyes. Right. You have conversations with people, your family members. And if you see that they got it and they're OK. What else do you now? What do you what are you falling on now? Yeah. So I mean, that's, I, that's what I was hoping. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good point. Um, I know we didn't talk about this before, but I just got a question. So what do you think about. I don't even know what my answer to this is, but what do you think like other like celebrities responsibilities are? Because I'm thinking now in terms of 
like the Nicki Minaj thing in terms of her her yeah. comments. And then I'm thinking about Joe Rogan talking about horse medicine. You know what I mean? So what what is their responsibility? Because you're talking about people with huge platforms, right? Who in certain cases are are spreading with the majority of people, especially in the scientific world, I would say it's just conspiracy theories, right? Mm-hmm. But people are always going to come back to, okay, my platform, my opinion, right. right? Now, you know, obviously I, you know, again, I, I've gotten to the point in my personal life and otherwise that it's not even to be condescending, but it's like, you can't argue about something that you know with somebody who thinks they know. You understand what I'm saying? And that, it sounds messed up, but people apply it to every other situation in their lives, especially with their children, right? It, Right. You know, our children, our children think they know a lot, but if we know something, you know what I'm saying. If they tell you this, you you know, um, whatever. Let's, let's, I don't even gonna come up with a crazy example, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, no. They, you know, they, they, um, they so know. what do you think about that? Is there any responsibility? Where's the line? Because you got Joe Rogan. I think he has the the biggest podcast in in America, right? You got Nicki Minaj. She has millions of followers, right? But both of these people. A lot of people would look at and be like, listen, these are intelligent people. They're certainly talented. They've certainly made a lot of money. You know, they've been successful at the top of their business. So a lot of people would tell you that they're experts or not geniuses in their field. Right. But then they do and say this. Right. So what you think? What do you think? You know, I hold them to the same um, accountability that I, I hold anybody um, because. Um, you have the right to do with your platform, like you mentioned, whatever you would like. I would hold them to the same accountability and responsibility you and I or anyone that has a large following on TikTok, right? Make sure like you have the right to believe whatever you want. My whole thing that I subscribe to is just make sure you're making an informed decision or whatever you're going to be like advocating, yeah. have it be, you know, based off of something. You know, like, unfortunately, like with Nicki Minaj's, I think hers was anecdotal. Hers was like um, her a relative or somebody of hers, I think, was, you know, had something happen to their testes or some some yeah. something outrageous. Right. But it wasn't like, oh, I saw this article that came out. You know, it was somebody that she knew or a family member. And then she went off and made this like this claim. Now, I don't know about I remember what Joe Rogan says. I'm, I don't know if his was based off of some type of research or paperwork literature. I, I don't know. Listen. However, listen, if you I hold listen. them to the same people or to the same, you know, um, you know, accountability, because whether you got a million people or you got a thousand people, you never know who like what you're saying whether it be on TikTok, whether it be on Facebook, whether it be on IG, who that may influence, right? Because you might have somebody that's on the side of the fence who's just like, oh, well, you know, and it make that, oh, well, if Nikki said it, or if, if Dr. Kyle said it, you know, then it's, it could sway that person either way. Now they're based off, or they're, you know, they're susceptible to that because they haven't gone off and done their own information. So you can say whatever you want, just have it be some type of literature based, you know. Now we know that literature and stats can be swayed either way, right? You can sway it whichever way you want to get your point across to or support whatever your theory is. But I think when you get up here and you start saying anecdotal stuff, like that's that's the, the thing where it's just like, ah, I can't, I can't roll with that. You know what I'm 
say, and at this point, I'm not talking about Nicki Minaj or Joe Rogan specifically, but I can, I would probably group them in a group of a lot of celebrities I've heard speak out on the vaccine in the last couple year, right? Right. The, the fear that I have is, I think is the danger is that it's becoming like, like um, the Make America Great Again hats, right? Like saying, speaking out against the vaccine, right? Like it's becoming just like a, the popular thing to do, right? To create, you know, controversy, get people to watch a video, whatever it is. Um, whether you're making remarks at a concert or to a, you know, a newspaper or whatever. My fear is like it's becoming like that, you know, um, because if we're being honest, like, again, everybody has eyes, everybody, you know, we have freedom in America, so everybody can read, right? But but what are the odds that all of the people that we're talking about even know where to access the appropriate research that may probably may be coming from like places like the National Institutes of Health, where you can really make an informed decision on your own? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, what are the odds of that? If we're being honest, I, I, I can't be one of these people. You know, that there's people that want to sit on, stand around all day and play the what if game. But people would do it, but they could do it. And that's like, what are the odds, bro? And the odds are very low. Right. Because the problem is most people, even most people listen to the experts. Right. Especially people that know a whole lot. Because people who know a whole lot know how little they know. And that's that's the problem, right? People who, who know a whole lot, have a lot of information, know how little they know even when they're an expert, right? So that's why we listen to the experts, you know? Um, so I just fear that we're getting into a space where it's just become the popular thing to do, you know, or say. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's one of those charged topics and it definitely, un, unfortunately, it's turned into the, the either or, like what side do you fall on, right? It can't just be... You know, you have an opinion about it. It's either you, you're pro or you're anti. And, you know, even from the very beginning, from when we started, was make an informed decision. You know, like right. we're not going to get up here and say, you need to do this. I do it. So you need to do it. It's like, not nah, make an informed decision. And you're right. A lot of people are not going to, they're going to kind of see who they identify with and unfortunately roll with that, which is why I hold them to the same in account. You have a platform and you're going to, you're going to speak on something like this. Nah, I, I hold you accountable, you know, like, seriously, you don't care who you are because there are a lot of people that are going to sway, like you said, are going to put on that red hat or whatever and follow your lead. And you, you know, that could be really dangerous. But see, and this is where I think, I think things get crossed with some people, right? And I'm not talking about you. Make an informed decision is true because we live in America, right? But make an informed decision and what's in the best interest of public health do not have to be on the same page, right? And people, I think, fundamentally misunderstand that, especially when it comes to something like vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. They would understand it, right? If I made an informed, if, if I made the decision to walk into all the preschools in America and start smoking Newports, Everybody would agree with the public health policy to put me out and, and arrest me, right? Why would they say that? Of course, why can you do it? Because you don't want to make the kids sick, right? But in terms of the vaccine, when it comes to public health policy, people act like that's violating them, right? So you do have a right to make an informed decision, but that's why we see 
as a result of your informed decision, now you can't come in this restaurant. Now you can't work here. Now you can't come in it, right? The, which is public health policy, right? Right, and I and that's and that's where I think that's that's where I think ruffles a couple of feathers because people want to make their own decision and then continue to have the freedom to do what they want to do, and those two things just don't, you know, they just don't equate all the time, bro. It's not, it's not, it's not matching up. So, yeah, it's um. It's something, man, because it, it feels like every other week you got some type of celebrity or somebody that has a large platform and they go off and say something and it just kind of charges everything back up. Well, so. it's not going away, though. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll revisit it again. Of course. All right. Speaking of revisiting things, um, as we know, last week um, we, we remember the events of September 11th. And, um, you know, of course, you know, our thoughts and prayers. Go out with, you know, any of the victims, the victims, families, um, the, our first responders, the firefighters, the police officers. Um, and so it's 20 years. Right. It's been 20 years since um, the, the the horrific September 11 attacks. And, you know, something um, that I thought about in an interesting article that came across our way was. How the evolution of trauma and PTSD changed from that. Right. You know, a lot of times they talk about so many different aspects of it, but a lot of what we know about trauma, you know, changed that day and with the aftermath. So um, that was something that, you know, I thought would be a really, you know, interesting topic and something to kind of reflect upon because, you know, there's been innovations and in, in as far as the treatment with, with trauma and PTSD and then, you know, there's been an increase in understanding. So you know, and also just how overall, how different providers, you know, look and view PTSD and trauma. So, you know, what were some of the things that stood out for you or some takeaways for you um, as you read through this article? Um, I mean, listen, you know, of course, September 11th, like changed the way a lot of people kind of viewed um, trauma in a bunch of ways, right? Um, one, in terms of like, it, obviously, this isn't the first time that mental health has been brought to the forefront, right, um, in terms of like a, a situation of need. Um, but I think this helped in terms of public understanding, like, uh, to increase the public understanding. I'm not saying it was a beneficial in any way, of course, but um, of just trauma in general, right? And, and the reason why I say that is because so many people on so many layers were affected, right? Um, so it just helped people gain like a fundamental understanding of like what PTSD was, you know, what vicarious trauma, things like that are. Um, and just how, you know, trauma doesn't just really stop with the individual, right? It, it kind of has a rippling effect throughout that person's family, um, their children, you know, their interactions, all of those things. Um, and the other thing that I think was very important is just how it kind of also shined a light on the multiple things that could cause somebody to, to feel the impact of trauma. Right. Um, and, and again, I mean, we're saying that in the midst of a, a pandemic that we're probably going to look back on similarly to the way we look back on September 11th. Right. <laughs> um, in terms of the amount of people that died from that, you know, and um, the impact on families. Um, so I just think it kind of, you know, just helped bring a light to that, right? Because when we talk about PTSD, like a lot of times 
you know, people don't understand, like there's a range, range of things that can cause PTSD, you know, um, you know, whether it's, you know, a childhood abuse or whether it's a situation like September 11th um, or a range of things in between, right? Um, whether it's a sexual assault or, you know, robbery, these, these type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think that's, you know, good in terms of aiding understanding. And then, you know, also the public knowledge is important because a lot of the symptoms of trauma, you know, unfortunately, like we see people's behavioral reactions, um, but we don't see the nightmares, right? We don't see the intrusive thoughts, right? We don't see the flashbacks. Um, and, you know, that could be difficult for people to put into words for a lot of different reasons. So, um, you know, if, if, if anything, I think, um, you know, that that kind of pushing PTSD into the spotlight, I think it benefited, you know, in a lot of ways in terms of that, in terms of the un- public understanding of trauma. Yeah, I, I like what you said um, and to, to kind of highlight like the vicarious trauma, right? Because similar to, you know, COVID-19, like September 11th had like this potent effect, like of media exposure. And it had like this impact on people psychologically and physically, right? Over time, because you you saw the events happening, right? It was a communal event because it occurred on television and they, and unfortunately, the victims were everyday people, right? They were engaged in everyday activities. They were going to work. They were, you know, going about and they're, you know, getting on a flight. And so that it, it really just it was it was collective trauma. Right. Because we met them. And like you said, all these various forms of trauma came to the forefront, you know, from these from these events. And so it gave more information about it, Um, you know, one about vulnerability, because even as a nation, we were very vulnerable, you know, after these attacks. Right. Learning, you know, recovering. And then also I like like you said, how it expanded across the whole different spectrums of trauma. Right. It really if you look at it, it was kind of like a revolution if you in kind of storms like when I when I think about it, because you also look at the aspect of it, it, it got people thinking about like self-care. Right. And so you're not only just about you're talking about the victims um, that that's or in the survivors, but for the people that treat them. Now, I mean, this was in 2001. I was a senior in high school when um, when this took place. So, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that a lot of there was a lot of emphasis put on um, like on self-care as far as for the providers. Right. For the for the first responders. I don't know if there were there was a, as much conversation talking about like, you know, burnout and, you know, taking care of oneself and resiliency until this happened. Right. Until you started to see the after effects of the workers that were down there at ground zero that were helping out, that were experiencing some of, like you said, that vicarious trauma, even with the cleanup efforts. So I feel like that started that conversation through that. And then it also, you know, if you look at it, like it, it, with more research and more information, it also helped us kind of see like what treatments didn't work. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, what was that thing called? Um, critical critical incident stress debriefing. I don't know if you remember that, right? So that was involving like um, it was literally what it is. Like it was like debriefing after someone experienced a traumatic event. 
like you they made that person like recall the events like immediately. So okay. yeah. Right. How did, so, that, how did that work out? Right. It didn't work out at all, right? It was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and so like it showed the treatments that for trauma victims like did more harm than good. Because now like like you said, think about it. Like we're 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 looking at it and reflecting on it from a point of like what we know about trauma and, and some of the best, you know, treatment interventions. But imagine taking someone that just experienced a traumatic event, like you said, whether it was like sexual assault, whether you were in battle, whether whatever the situations may be. Mm-hmm. And you're asking that person to tell you all about it while they're still like in a hypervigilant emotional state, but you're asking them to recall everything. And that was, that was a type of treatment. Yeah. So, you know, with that, with more information, and like you said, more spotlight, um, more emphasis placed on trauma. Now they were able to say, okay, you know what? This treatment is no good. This isn't working. Now we can actually do some research and get some more evidence-based, not to say that that wasn't evidence-based, but we definitely found out that that didn't come through, that didn't work. And so now you got, you're ushering in more effective treatments, you know, due to this tragedy, I mean, due to this tragedy, but now you're also helping people, not just these survivors, but you're also helping other folks, you know, that that experience trauma, you know, later on. So I felt like that was, like you said, is no good, but there were some benefits that came out of like just the increase in research and 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 um and the awareness on trauma. Yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say is, um, I, I number one, I'm surprised that 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 treatment you're talking about, like that's crazy. Um, the real thing, bro. But it, but it kind of leads into my next point because what I was gonna say is, um, especially like I don't I don't know if this came about you know largely because of 9/11, but I've seen a lot of attention given in the last decade to like um, what you would, I don't want to say non-traditional treatments, but non-talk therapy treatments, right? Um, and I think that to talk about that is very important, especially when we talk about trauma, right? And I mean like whether it's like dance movement therapy or yoga, um, different things, because listen, the science is there. And, you know, um, those of us who have took the time to do the research as, you know, psychologists and practitioners, like we know, you know, like trauma is stored in the body with a lot of our patients, you know what I'm saying? And that's why when they come in our office, they don't want to talk about their traumatic experiences. A lot of them either A, have no words for it, or B, you know, they don't have, they, they can't, come up with the words because a lot of their trauma is met, is, 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 is trapped in different areas of their body, right? Um, so I think um, within the last decade, I think it's been very more beneficial for the patients than anything else that we've kind of started to embrace a lot more non-talk therapies, right? Because I think whether it be CBT, whether it be um, other types of, types of talk therapy, um, I think they can be beneficial. You know, um, definitely beneficial to trauma because we're all different in terms of how we process things, right? So, what's beneficial to me, some people may benefit from talk therapy, CBT, exposure. Somebody might it might be dance movement therapy, right? But I think it's important that we kind of um, put the shine the light and and, and kind of put the emphasis on a lot of these um, a lot a lot of these um, you know therapies that kind of focus more you know, on trauma that's trapped in the body because a lot of our patients, especially the younger ones, you know, they have challenges accessing their, you know, 
those memories or they have challenges accessing the words to talk about them. Mm-hmm. No, that's really important. And um, I'm happy you mentioned that <laughs> for the reason that not everyone experiences trauma the same, right? It's not always right. the same impact that it has on someone. So, you know, when, when you, um, that was the importance of studying trauma and realizing, like you said, there are so many different modalities that can be yeah. helpful. Like you mentioned the dance and, you know, music therapy, all these other different ones. It's like, okay, well, this is going to fit for this particular person, right? Because this right. is the way that they interpreted the trauma, right? This is, you know, it was so much more information that they were able to, you know, have this spectrum of various treatments of the severity of how this person might be experiencing, whether they were experiencing, you know, the long-term effects or they weren't. Like, I felt like that was also, like you just said, so helpful and not just putting everybody in one box because there are varying degrees of what someone took and how they're interpreting it and experiencing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's great, you know, along with that psychological first aid, all these other different interventions and modalities that get, that are, that came to the forefront because of this. So um, I'm excited to see, you know, what new invention, you know, interventions are going to be ushered in through the next 10 years, because like you, as you know, and I know, like it's always evolving, right? There's always more information. There's always more research coming through. So um, yeah, it's, it's like you said, if, if out of a tragedy, you're able to get, more informative, more research-based, more effective care for those, then, you know, it's a, you know, I don't want to call it a win, but again, it, it's beneficial and, and it, it is helpful for the folks coming down the line. Yeah, yeah, believe it at that. I think that's what the, I, I agree. All right. So we mentioned social media earlier, right? So let, mm-hmm. let, let's get in. So TikTok, right? TikTok just recently unveiled a new mental health research on its platform to address the well-being of all of its 65.9 million viewers. All right. So what they did in this app um, or this new tool that they're introducing, it addresses uh, and includes like in-app guides that address like body image topics, uh, signs of struggling and more. So what TikTok has done is that they're altering, they provide this, this app or this option that altering, you know, the search results of say like self-harm, right. Or terms as suicide. So instead of seeing more harmful clips that'll pop up promoting suicide or even committing the act, what'll happen is that the um, individuals will be met with like support and treatment resources. And uh, what else did it say? So, and additionally, so if someone were to enter a search phrase that might be like alarming to like to talk, like offering like scary makeup as an example, then the content will be blurred out and they'll ask users to opt in to see the search results. So now a lot of this is coming off the heels of um, there was a Wall Street Journal that came out, a story that alleged that Facebook had publicly downplayed uh, Instagram's effects on teens mental health even though Facebook's own research and studies repeatedly like revealed serious negative impacts um, that confirm the issue. So that's what prompted TikTok to, you know, uh, put this, this endeavor in. So um, they also released a statement. They said, we care deeply about our community and we have always looked for new ways in which we can nurture their well-being. So what, uh, what are your thoughts about this, Jeff? Um, I haven't quite decided how I feel about it fully yet. Um, I see some positives. Um, one, I think the positive, the, the first kind of thing I 
was thinking about when I was reading it is when they were talking about if like you search for suicide, it will kind of direct you to resources in your area, like local local resources, right? Um, I think that's excellent. I think that's something that should probably be standard across social media platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because I just think it would, this just could benefit. I don't, I don't see how it could hurt anybody. Um, so I think that's great. Um, again, signs of struggling and psychoeducation about eating disorders, body disorders. I mean, that's all good. Um, I would like to know a little bit more about how they're going to kind of make it digestible and marketable so that people actually want to go read it, you know, because most people don't hop on the TikTok to read about, you know, body, you know, dysmorphia or eating disorder. So how they're going to package that stuff is a, is a little questionable, but at least they're making an effort. Um, I'm kind of going back and forth about whether this is a responsible move or whether it's just hypocritical. Right. Because we know that whether it be Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. I'm not saying they're solely responsible for young people and older people, you know, having kind of increase in their vulnerability when it comes to self, you know, their image, body image, all these things. But they're right in the middle of it. You know, when we used to say the media and point out, we used to say magazines and, and movies and television. Now it's Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. Right. Um, because some people will tell you, I mean, I think we could have a good argument as to whether they're more influential than the radio, the television, and film. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think it's a good discussion to have. But I don't know if they're being hypocritical or responsible because I know they're doing damage control. I'll tell you that. Um, so like I said, it's a good move to put the stuff up there about the suicide, eating disorders. But... I'm wondering if it's kind of like, you know, you go into a liquor store, you buy a six pack of beer on your way out, you look up and what's on the wall of the liquor store, right? Uh, a, a picture of a guy or a girl having the time of their, their life on the beach, drinking all this beer, you know what I mean? Buckets of it. And then, at, and then down in the corner, they say, don't drink and drive. Yeah. Drink responsibly. Drink responsibly. <laughs> so, so it's like, I'm wondering if that's TikTok's version of saying drink responsibly. You know what I'm saying? Because, I, I mean, what are, but what else are they going to do? They're not going to limit kids' time on their own platform. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's what China just did, right, with the online gaming. Right, right. Um, so what do you think? Is it hypocritical, responsible? Which, which, what you, how do you feel about it? Um, I'm, I'm on the same same lines as where... It's a great idea, right? And and I think this is pretty much all a, a media platform can do because if you do any more than that, sometimes you really have to be careful because, like you said, you you fall into that. Well, the the allowing people to rights and and things of that nature, right? I feel like if you you want to be careful when you move into the censorship lane because then if you move too far into that area, then you know, that could be an issue. You can see people having issues with that. And then also we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier before we got on is that you can monetize things, right? So I'm also hoping that this endeavor doesn't turn into a situation where you're monetizing things that are really intended to be like helpful resources, right? Right. So I think you really have to be careful. So 
if we're looking at it in total, like like you said, there are, there are pros and cons of, of all of this. I mean, for most social media things, but even if we're talking about specifically, say, with TikTok, like TikTok is great for the reason that, you know, it's important to talk about suicide. It's important to talk about anxiety, depression, um, and, and not have that content like removed. Like, I think an initiative that they're trying to do will continue to push away some of those old old age kind of fear-based conversations about say suicide i mean because that's one of the things that when kids or not just kids but anybody gets on and you talk about suicide or issue comes up the manner sometimes because tiktok has a certain type of humor right Mm -hmm. have a certain type of the way they present things and um you know like it's just it's, it's important to keep that conversations going where maybe before people might've been afraid to talk about suicide, right? This generation are, they're way more forthcoming. They're way more, you know, outgoing and upfront with talking about certain topics that maybe a generation ago, people may have seen like that was taboo or we're going to keep that like in the dark. So, you know, and I've, a lot of people have, especially young kids have said that they've learned about certain things on, on social media as the goals for, you know, or relates to mental health, right. They've said that they've learned about depression, anxiety, intention, um, attention problems, eating disorders, whatever the situation may be on TikTok. And I'm not going to sit here and not, you know, and be a hypocrite because you know, and I know that I've posted some content on, you know, TikTok as far as ways to cope with depression, trauma, all these other different things. Well, hold on, right? hold on, hold on. I think you're selling yourself short because Listen, you a viral star on TikTok. I'm not viral. I do, I, do, I do a couple dance moves on the thing, you know. You're a viral star on TikTok. I, I do a couple dance moves. I slide, you know, anybody interested, Dr. Wow. Kyle on, on, you know, TikTok, check me out. Yeah. Um, Promote yourself, man. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, and so like, I've, along with myself and I've seen, you know, other therapists, other clinicians, you know, get on TikTok and, you know, they put some informative videos. So I like that that's fat because, you know, most of them are accurate. Most of them are informative and they're helpful. So if you have a group of kids that like, hey, I don't know anything about mental health or about depression. I've heard about it. And then, you know, they run into a video from myself or another therapist or somebody that, you know, is kind of telling them, hey, if you feel like this, this could be helpful. This could be helpful. Mm-hmm. I think also where you have to kind of tell the line is that my concern has always been people or kids using TikTok like to diagnose or treat themselves because that's not what it's for. So that's why I'm hoping that, you know, that this initiative is going to put them in an area where it's like, Hey, if you're this, you know, resonates with you. Okay. These are the resources, right? This is where you can get help because fortunately, you know, you are going to have some people that are going to diagnose themselves and be like, Oh, well, this is me. That's me. That's me. This is this. And so, and like you said, that's where sometimes, you know, I think TikTok, it's really important for them to kind of make clear um, that what they're offering is not a substitute for treatment, right? It's not a, it's not mental health care. Um, I'm happy that they're going to start putting some, you know, the the resources in, in place for that, because that's where I feel like this could kind of get out of control. Like you said, it's like, oh, we're having so much fun, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. Um drink responsibly or if you have problems you know call this number like no there needs to be like something that takes you right there and and provides some form of treatment some not form of treatment but resources where you can you know get some help or get the the things that you need so that's always that's kind of been my view on this where like 
you know, put some things in place where if people are clicking on this content, then they're also able to get those resources. They're also able to get the help because it's, it's not a substitute for treatment. It's not a sub- Don't go in there and, and diagnose yourself. Like, I think they need to be more clear and kind of putting that out there or, or, or like spreading that information. I agree, man. I can't, can't add nothing to that, man. Um, I agree with you, man. Like I said, I'm not, I'm going to see what they do with it and, you know, kind of how these changes impact, you know, the, you know, uh, the platform as a whole, but I'm still not, I sold, I don't know if it's hypocritical or it's responsible yet. I, I got to think about it. Still. I think the, the initiative or the goal is to be responsible. I do feel like, again, this is also being prompted because of what Facebook, you know, um, because they just flat out downplayed and denied, like, ah, no, nah, no, yeah, there's no negative impact on 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 kids. Like, nah. that's why I said, I don't, I don't know yet if this the goal is to be responsible or if they're just trying to get out ahead of what they know is coming. Probably a little bit of both. You know, mm-hmm. now I will say, like, if you're if you are serious about this, uh, you know, even if it's prompted off of, like you said damage control and trying to get ahead of things, you know, there are some things that you can put in place. Like if someone is looking for services, it shouldn't be like multiple buttons or multiple like areas you have to go through because, you know, that serves as a barrier. Like if I'm in need and I'm, I got to click through here and this is going to take me to a link and this is going to take me to a link. Like, no, it needs to just be like one button. Right. So as far as making the inner surface, like the, the interface more user friendly, as far as that goes, you know, that to me, all right, they're taking this more serious, even though it might have been just prompted off of them just trying to, like, save themselves or, or, or damage. So we'll see, man. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. You know? Yep. Definitely. All right. So rounding things off. So one local college is making a change in the mental health, my friend. All right. So in Tallahassee, Florida. A recent study came out that 39% of students experience significant mental health issues during their college experience. And 67% of young adults between the ages of, 20, of 18 and 24 don't seek treatment for anxiety or depression. So what Tallahassee Community College is, they're rolling out a new app called WellTrack. So this app is designed to uh, let students learn skills and get through feelings of anxiety and depression. And in addition, it um, helps them um, find in-person counseling so they can better serve their students virtually. Um, And it's also available for faculty and staff, which I thought was pretty cool. So what what are are your thoughts about this, Jeff? I think this is, to me, I mean, without kind of seeing it implemented, I I give them an A plus, right? Um, For intent and and in terms of implementation, right? And what I mean by that is, to me, this seems like it's been done in good faith, right? In terms of, I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is a school whose environment is really trying to support positive mental health, right? And you know that, right? Because of who they made it available to, everybody, right? Um, Number one, I think it's a good thing because you're allowing people to, you know, remain, remain anonymous, you know, removing stigma, allowing people to kind of download something on their phone and you're meeting them where they're at. So some people aren't going to be ready to come to treatment. You know, they just want to learn skills on their phone. Right. 
Some people don't want to learn skills or, you know, they know some skills and they just want to read and get some psychoeducation. Some people want to reach out to a therapist. You know how many people just want to, you know how many people, and I'm not, I'm not like at least twice a month, at least three people text me or DM me and just ask me for therapy resources, which I appreciate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them, you know, say to me, you know, oh, you know, can you, can you help me out? Because I, you know, I don't know nobody else, you know, now I'm happy to help them, but it's just barriers between people actually doing it. This therapist all over the place on Google. I'm not saying it because I want them to use Google. I, I'm, I'm humbled that they came to me, but I'm just saying it's a, it's, it's a difficult experience, you know, what I'm, as you know, so I think that's good, man. It's free, it's accessible, and it's removing stigma, right? And they kind of emphasize that it's in, in addition to in-person counseling, not a substitute. So I can't complain. I think it should be available on, on every college campus, including the one I'm on, you know? Yeah, I like um, I like what the, um, the vice president of their student affairs mentioned in the article is that we don't want mental health to be a barrier for students and for them to be able to achieve their academic success while studying here. And something I think that um, doesn't get paid enough attention to are just some of the intangibles. And, you know, it's stressful being in school, especially now, given, you know, with COVID. But even prior to that, like it, it's stressful being in school, you know, in college. Like, And, and honestly, I'm going to expand that because it's not it doesn't matter what level of schooling you're on, whether you're getting your associates, whether you're getting your bachelor's, whether you're getting your master's, whether you're getting your doctorate. You know, school is stressful. <laughs> you know, it's an investment. Like, you, it's something in addition to, you know, your work life, your family life, you know, money, all these other different additional stressors. And so now you're also choosing to, you know, work on yourself. You're, you're, you're choosing to improve yourself, work on whatever academic goals and professional goals you have. And this can be very stressful, right? You know, it can prompt depression. It can prompt anxiety. And I, I'm happy that, this school has decided to get, you know, this, this initiative early on and provide this resource to their students. And sure. I mean, you know, we talked about this also before we came on is that even for faculty and um, and professors, like this is a challenge, right? This is also something in addition to your family life, in addition to other stressors that you have. And, you know, this provides challenges, this provides stress. So these are some of the things that I don't think Unfortunately, the general public kind of thinks about when, you know, they think about students, when they think about school or college or whatever, you know, level of, of academia, because this is this is this is a whole new world. Like this is, you know, you you know, we're we're not too far removed from from being and sitting in the classroom ourselves. Like this is it's difficult. It's very stressful. And, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I think all schools should, you know, get in on this endeavor and and have something similar to it if you're not going to have you know something like well track itself um because this is an additional resource that kids need right? right if your kid isn't like if you're not doing well you know mentally as we've talked about in previous episodes and just kind of with our clients and our patients then there's no well that there's no way that this this student's going to be able to do well in your classroom right i mean listen parents understand this very clearly like you know um 
sometimes just because of the ambition, not because they don't understand. We got to sometimes get teachers to understand it again, right? Like, um, if certain things, if, if a kid isn't doing well, they can't learn, right? So we tell the teachers all the time, if the, if the kid didn't eat or if their parents are at home fighting in the morning, you know, it's going to be a little difficult for him to focus on the math. You know what I mean? Um, respectfully, right? Um, so it's the same kind of concept here. Like, um, if you don't take care of your mental health, your relationship's not going to be okay, right? Work's not going to be okay. Everything else is going to be that much more challenging, um, you know, because the intern, the internal, internally, that you know, you're struggling. So um, I agree. Um, and again, like talking to some of the students this semester, a lot of the students that I'm, I'm working with, like the, you asked them about, like I was asking them about their stressors, man. It's some of the, the things that you wouldn't think, you know. Um, you know, their stress is their stress. So I'm not being dismissive about it. You know, whatever they identify as important to them. But um, it's not, it may be not necessarily be what you think, right? A lot of the students identify different things. You know, for one person, it might be having to learn at home last semester. And for somebody else, it might be sitting there in the classroom with a mask. For somebody else, it might be their child was home with them for the past year and now they're not, you know? <laughs> you know? So um, and for somebody else, it might be financial about, you know, just books and grades or whatever. But um, like who, whatever it is, if they say, you know, in this article, they said 67% of young adults between 18 to 24 do not seek um, treatment for anxiety or depression. Like that's scary to me, man. You know, um, and I'm not trying to overdiagnose, you know, people, um, you know, um, because we know some things, some people, when they have symptoms, some things will dissipate on their own, but we want to encourage people, especially who have more who have significant symptoms to always reach out. Totally. I mean, you know, you have to think about it, even if we're looking at it from the administrative or business aspect of, of school. Um, if you're an institution, you want your students to be in the best, you know, condition of possible, yeah. especially mentally, because there are so many different reasons. And a lot of them you just mentioned why people don't finish, you know, when they're going for whatever degree. Right, right, right. It happens, right? All these other different stressors get in the way. And, you know, you don't have those resources to kind of help you manage that. You don't have that support because not everybody comes from where they have a whole bunch of family and friends that are able to help them with their kids, able to help them with finances, are able to help them or motivate them, right? So if you don't have, you know, that luxury or that support system, you know, it, it's in the best interest. I even think just for all these you know, schools or to provide this resource to them because you want your kids to finish. I mean, you want, you know, your numbers to go up. You want to continue to gain tuition. You want all these other different things that lend itself to your students doing well, right? right. Of course, for their health, but it's also for a whole number of other different reasons why you want students to come through and do well in your program and graduate and, and so on and so forth. So um, Tallahassee, man, they're, they're getting it right. So I'm, I'm hoping, again, like when we do articles and, and we discuss these, that this creates more awareness um, in other different cities, other different states, so they can, you know, follow suit because, you know, this is helpful. And, you know, I, um, I'm happy. Again, we're, we're in a digital world. 
you know, so things, you know, a, a lot of apps are, are popping up and this would have been great while, you know, we were an undergrad and we were in, you know, mm-hmm. getting our magic, you know, it's, it's so many different things because, you know, now we have like our breathing apps. We have all these different apps that are helpful now for us that, you know, they were there while we were, you know, getting our doctorate and things. But like, I can only imagine like how helpful this would have been like in undergrad while we were in the beginning of our master program. So, um, so yeah, special acknowledgement and shout out to Tallahassee Community College. You guys are uh, are doing it. You guys are on the right track. I like, like where you guys are thinking. Definitely, definitely, man. All right, Jay. Anything we uh we missed or anything else we should highlight before we get out of here? No, I think we're good. Just want to again, you know, thank everybody uh, for listening. Please like, uh, share the videos if you got a chance to, um, and we're gonna keep the content coming. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, hit that like button and subscribe, guys. Uh, Jay, without further ado, my friend, always a pleasure. Do it again next week, my friend. All right, bro. Listen, man, I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna meet you at the uh, in Philly for the um, out of the darkness joint. You 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 doing it right? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Thank you for reminding me. It's that's right. It is um still continuing to be September National Suicide Prevention Month. Uh yeah absolutely. I have a team uh that I'm rolling with. It's down at the art museum October second, I believe. Whatever that first Saturday is in October. Um, so yeah. Team um, Knockout Suicide, KLC Suicide. So, uh, yeah, we're on there. I'm down there. You know, I'm doing fundraising. And, um, yeah, we're, I'm, we're out there, man. So anybody that that's free, it should be a, a good day. Hopefully the weather holds up, but it's going to be down at the Art Museum. Come roll with us, man. You know, we're going we're gonna to be out there, uh, you know, creating awareness for suicide prevention. It's going to be a good one. I did it two years ago. It was a great turnout. I mean, it was amazing. They had some some pretty good speakers out there. The weather was great. So, um, yeah, come on down, Jay. We we in there, baby. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, right, no burn, doubt, some, burn some calories, get the steps in, you know. <laughs> I'm going to see you down there, man. All right, cool, bro. I'll talk to you. All right, later. All right.